So I've been noticing not only I, but in all of us, in the interviews, the whole time, but especially these last couple of weeks. Actually, I'd say everybody I see in many ways so much um, insight, so much understanding is opening up in a whole variety of ways different for each person, you know. It can be insights into um, impermanence, anatta, into dukkha, that level of uh, nature. A lot of insights into how that manifests as our personality patterns, how you get caught, how you can be free. Really powerful and important um, aspects of freedom, of understanding, of liberation. And it's wonderful. I mean, it's so inspiring for us to be able to see this, even more when you allow yourselves to recognize that that's also happening at times. Um, and then the other, the other side of it sometimes that I've also been noticing in a lot of interviews, um, not exactly a corollary, but often comes along, is a sense the insights don't stay. You've probably noticed that. They change. And, and not always, but often, people can fall into, and again, this also changes, a kind of um, confusion, discouragement, frustration, or even losing a sense of faith or confidence because you, know, you feel like you've really seen through your personality patterns. You've really understood deeply that craving that extra piece of candy isn't going to do it for you. You really let go of it. The okay, I've got it. I've seen through craving. You know? And that, in that moment, you really did. In that moment, you really did. But it's so, um, well, I've just seen that when, when it changes, and again, we see very clearly, and the mind intellectually knows craving brings suffering, and the hand goes out, and it takes the thing, and you shove it in your mouth, and you swallow it down, and you go get another one, and you're watching the whole thing, <laughs> watching it, which only makes it worse, really, right? Because then you can add self-judgment on top of it. Like, what the heck? I was, two minutes ago, I was so awakened. <laughs> and, so I just want to talk to some aspects of that because it's a, it's a misunderstanding to think that you've somehow fallen away. It's a misunderstanding to feel that, well, you know, we, we, we're so impatient. And in some ways, um, it's our culture, not only our culture. You know, there's a famous story Sharon tells that many years ago that a a letter addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. And I said, we think, we see it, we see it once, boss, that should be enough. And I'm, I'm joking a little, but it can really be quite, um, well, deeply painful, confusing. It can really lead, at times, to a crisis of confidence or just a sense of frustration. So I just thought I'd talk about a few aspects of that, not comprehensive by any means, but just some different things that that have come to my mind about that, which I hope are helpful. Um, one thing, just to remind you all, when you're seeing yourself be caught again in a particular pattern that you've really seen, and you know the pain of it, and the pattern seems so huge, and what you're doing, having that third piece of candy or whatever, seems so enormous. I just want to remind you all, you're in a very protected environment. Things are exaggerated. 
in your mind, you know. It's, that helps us see the patterns more. But Utejaniya loves to say that samadhi magnifies experience and kalesa exaggerates experience. So put them together. <laughs> Whoa, it's huge. I felt this anger at this person. And I mean, I felt anger. I really wished them ill. Did you do anything? No, no, no. But it's horrible. It's horrible. You know? I'm so greedy. So just to give you a little bit of a reality check, I heard this on the radio this morning. You know, the day after Thanksgiving is a huge shopping day, right? And so they're talking about some Best Buy. It's an appliance store, if you're not America, American electronics store in Virginia or somewhere, but it's a chain. So it was going to open at 5 a.m. this morning, 5 a.m. You think, who in their right mind is going to be there at 5 a.m.? So they sent a reporter to interview. They interviewed some people, one man who got in line, 5 a.m. this morning it opened. 10 a.m. yesterday morning, he got in line. He stayed in line all day and through the night until 5 a.m. when he could go in and buy stuff. That's <laughs> like, you know, scary, right? So then she's interviewing him. Well, what are you buying? Oh, you must have really wanted to get stuff for your family and friends. And he just roared with laughter. He goes, are you kidding? I'm getting stuff for me. Who would stand in line that long to get stuff for somebody else? <laughs> so, really, you could cut yourself some slack. <laughs> so that's just one thing I wanted to say about it. In terms of really the cultivation of wisdom and insight, the constant deepening. I'm sure you've seen it's a spiral. It's not that we see through one thing, that's done, and we see something new. I'm still seeing, oh, this isn't going to be too inspiring, but I'm <laughs> still seeing the same old personality patterns from different, more subtle points of view. You know how I'm caught, they're more empty. But it keeps spiraling. To, oh, now, this again versus this again. This, oh, now I see. But then are not really getting the levels of wisdom. We think every time, now I've got it. Now I see. Oh, this again. It keeps going. So they talk in the, in the um, commentaries about three types, three aspects of wisdom. So about, the first is called in Pali, Sutta Maya Panya. Panya is wisdom. Sutta means it's the, the same, it's the same root that the words, the suttas come from. Sutta means what is heard. So Sutta Maya Panya is wisdom that we get from hearing or reading the words of others. Wisdom that comes in. So it's important. So you could call borrowed wisdom. It start, inspires us. The second one is called Chinta Maya Panya. Chinta, like from Chitta, the mind. And this is mm, roughly translated as intellectual wisdom. So it's like with our thinking mind, with our reasoning, with our logic, we kind of look over, we contemplate, we test. You know, does this seem, does the stuff that we've heard, the sutta, the, the heard wisdom, kind of test it. Does this seem true? Does it seem real in my experience? You know, we're kind of contemplating it. And that's very useful. But both of those don't really take us into the depth, into ourselves, so to speak. So the third type of wisdom they talk about is bhavana, mayapanya, or experiential wisdom. Bhavana, the word that's used for meditation, for cultivation of mind. 
So that's experiential wisdom, which really based on our own experience. All three of these are useful. Only the bhavana mayapanya is liberating. So when we talk about, we here, talk about, oh, you had a deep insight, or a shallow insight, or some insight. What do we mean by insight, really? And that's, insight really is on this um, bhavana, mayapanya, this um, real internal experiential level of knowing, of wisdom. What we call an insight is really, it's not thinking about something. We will later up the wazoo, but at the <laughs> moment of insight, it's not thinking. It's a kind of aha moment, you know, where really what it is is the perception shifts. It's a shift in perception. I actually really like um, the translation of, of um, samaditi as right view, thinking of view, how you see something, that it's almost literal that the perception that allows an insight just shifts. And so we recognize the perception, the interpretation, the understanding of an experience of ourselves. It could be a situation in life, an interpersonal relationship, or the, the nature of things, you know, the nature of impermanence, for example, or not self. The way that the mind's perceiving just suddenly shifts, so we see it from a completely different angle, right? You can't make that happen. It happens through the process of steady awareness. And what's so cool is that it, the perception shifts, the reality hasn't changed at all. So it's not that we're creating some new reality. Oh, it's like this, right? You all know that. We all see that. And so when that happens, that shift of perception, we may perceive that way for some moments, for some time, it may not last very long, and the more habitual way of perceiving may reemerge in the next moments, which, which is fine. But when you really see, so say, take the example of what I was giving about eating candy and craving, you know, and intellectually, we may have heard craving is a cause of suffering, and yeah, yeah, I don't know, maybe, let's look at it. We explore it, you've heard it, we really think about it, we say, yeah, that makes sense. You study the dependent origination, you think about it, that really makes sense. And as we know, that still doesn't end the craving. Then you have an experience, like I mentioned, where you really, there's the wanting, the wanting, you're dying for the candy, you sit there, you be with it, it goes, it's like, oh, the peace, the happiness, it's here. I didn't need the candy. That was a smoke screen, you know? Craving holds out, someone said, I forget who one of the, you in an interview said, it's like it's a false promise. It holds out the promise it'll make you happy. You were happy before the craving started, you'll be fine after it ends. It's the thing. So you see that really deeply. That's an insight. It's a shift of perception. Oh, I really see craving from a different point of view. Even though two minutes later or three days later, you have that intellectual memory of that, but the craving is catching us again. Having, so having really experienced that perception from another angle, even though it doesn't stay, it has an effect, does it? it has an effect on our mind stream. It has an effect on how we relate. The least it does is give us more faith. You know, okay, craving has really caught me now, but I know there's other possibilities. It, 
we may lose the immediacy of the insight, but even having recognized it and open to it, it kind of it opens up the possibilities. It opens up the box, you know, that we've been living in without realizing it, the box of what's possible, the box of how we think things are. And that's very powerful. But this, again, is the place. And the, the, it can be a little thing. I mean, that craving is not a little thing. It's a little instant. Or it can be a huge shift of perception. Example, times when you're sitting, the whole sense of body falls away. The sense of anything permanent is gone. You just experience for moments, for hours maybe, things just coming and going. There's nothing steady anywhere. The mind might be afraid. It might be relaxed and happy with it. But it's a real, it goes on, and there's a sense of really, oh, wow, this is really how it is. That's the place I want to go next. The mind goes, this is really how it is. But for a while, that shift of perception really, oh, yes, that other was one way. This is another way. And then we get caught in our black and white minds. If this is true, that can't be true. If this is true, that can't be true, right? Why can't they both be different perceptions of things, relative and absolute? This is where we can, one way we get confused. So this point of insight, this aha, this shift of perception, that's really what liberates our hearts and minds. We come, oh, that's how things are. There's not the struggle. There's not the trying to make things fit some idea. And this is because that perception may change, may fade, because the more familiar, say, of solidity of body comes back, and we perce- we've perceived moments of that all our life, we'll perceive moments of that again, and it's useful. If we get caught in that, but it was like this, and now it's like that, and I've fallen away, I've lost it, you know, just as I said in the beginning. This is a place that deep and really transformative insight, which it has been, gets oh, not respected or shoved away or we start to doubt because of our not understanding really the depth and breadth and length of the path. We know that, okay, the other's going to come back. Can that be okay too? We can fall into a lot of confusion, a lot of views. Now, how do we get there in that confusion? in those views, just that thing I said, the thought, oh, so this is how it is. Papancha, just to the definition in the commentaries, is what one perceives, one thinks about. That's just normal, what one perceives, one thinks about. So a, an accurate perception, an inaccurate perception. So when we, there is an insight, wow, maybe things aren't so solid. It's natural, it's normal that we're going to think about it, that thoughts will come and try and explain and help, because that's the way that we kind of hold information that we process. There's nothing wrong with thinking about it. That's going to happen. Turns into papancha. I'd give it two thoughts, you know, and then it's turned into papancha. goes on to what one thinks about, one complicates. One complicates with associations, with memories, with ideas, and then these notions assail and overwhelm a person. This is from the commentaries. So that can go off on the most 
you know, beautiful insight or on the completely stupidest perception you ever had. It doesn't really matter. Once it turns to Papancha, wow, this is how it really is. So now I know that everything's impermanent. Now I know that I'm not so, how am I going to live the rest of my life? If everything's, <laughs> how am I going to explain this to people? No, but now my body feels solid. It feels solid. How can it be? How, you know, whatever way you go, you get the drift. So, and if we can do that with a really accurate perception and insight, well, I don't need to tell you where we can go from the thought, I can't do this right. From the thought, my breath is ragged and heavy. It means something is wrong. Boom, you know. So what happens with the insight, in terms of insight, often when there's an insight, there's a huge release of energy. You know, we feel it as a kind of uh, a happiness, a piti, you know. It's a, a wholesome release of energy. And often, that can just turn back into mindfulness. We're just practicing with it. Often it leads to some thoughts about the insight and everything. That's fine. But sometimes we get a little carried away in the energy and forget about the mindfulness. And that's when uh, it can go really fast from insight into like real exuberant spinning and then suddenly crash. And you think, did I make that whole thing up? You know, now I'm just back in the soup. How did that happen? No problem, because you'll be out of the soup again, too. Nothing's permanent. But just to notice this movement from insight into thought. Thought's useful, chintamayapanya, that level of intellectual understanding, but not to be confused with bhavanamayapanya, with insight. It's not the same thing. Simply because a thought arises together with strong energy or strong emotion, wholesome or unwholesome, that doesn't make the thought more accurate. And this is really important, really important. In fact, in fact, we don't want to say always, but I would tend in the other direction. The thoughts arising with really strong emotion and punch, hmm, check it out. <laughs> don't land in that story. Just come back and feel the energy that's under it. So this is from Thich Nhat Hanh. Understanding does not arise as the result of thinking. It's the result of the long process of conscious awareness. Just what we've been saying. Sometimes understanding can be translated into thoughts, but often thoughts are too rigid and limited to carry much understanding. And that's not like thoughts are bad. It's just recognizing how we can use them, but not mistake them to be able to do more than they can. So one of the ways, or maybe the main way, that we get tricked by thoughts, that they are rigid and limiting, is when there's this papancha, this whole story, what we perceive, we think about. We think about, we use the, the perceptions and the thinking about it is really how we define our world. As I think Guy and Sally talked about, so I don't really want to go into that. And that can be useful if we know what we're doing. You know, we're defining the bell rings and we know it's lunchtime. That's a perception, that's a thought, time to go eat. Totally helpful. You know, you hear meditate, all those thoughts, totally helpful. But when it becomes a problem is when the thoughts, the explanation, the defining of our world 
it, it becomes into a view, right, an explanation. And without recognizing, it's one of the main fields of attachment, right? The main fields of grasping views. We've mentioned this too. And views are so seductive and can be so subtle. They just, the Buddha describes it as views when the mind thinks this alone is true and everything else is false. But what I found is that views rarely signal themselves that clearly. In fact, often I don't even realize I'm holding a view. This is how we think the world is, or this is how we think I am. The whole idea of Sakaya Ditti, personality view, as Guy described it so clearly, it arises just with a moment of craving and clinging to any of the aggregates. But it really strengthens into this view of this is how I am, this is who I am, this is mine, and then the rest of the thoughts that lead to papancha. A view is like, it, it's the box that our idea of ourselves in the world is bouncing around inside, but it's a completely illusory box that we don't know is there. It's like it, it defines, it limits our world. And we often don't even know we have it until some perception, well, you know, the view kind of shrinks our perception, right? So when you're thinking, I'm doing this wrong, and you're really believing that, any perception that comes in just shows that you're doing it wrong. You know, we've talked about this before, this selective perception. And often the way we know there's even a view there is when we start to feel somehow threatened or fearful or uneasy at some perception that's coming in that doesn't fit the view but that we can't completely block. This friend of mine was telling me a, a story about a Tibetan Lama he was <coughs> with a long time ago, Lama Gendon. And it's really letting, just seeing through views, just this opening into the moment, just having the, the possibility that how we think things are is just an idea. It's really about this op willingness to open into the mystery, into the unknown, into unknowing, you could say. And so often we're not comfortable there. So he was telling me this story in relation to this idea of uh, on a retreat or a teaching with Lama Gendon. And uh, the Lama was going on a really, really long um, description explanation about one of the deva worlds in the Tibetan system we call the Pure Land, the Dewa Chen, which is where the Amitabha Buddha is in that system. And it's, it's said in that if you want to aspire for another realm to be born into in your next life, this is just a tip. This is a really good realm to aspire to because it's a deva realm, so it's not you know, too horribly suffering, but it's one where there's dhamma teaching, so you don't get totally lost in the pleasure. So can't hurt, aspire. <laughs> aspire isn't the same as greed. Anyway, he's going on and on, describing the deva chen, the Amitabha Buddha, very happy realm of practice, very intricate. And it, after quite a while, he looked up at this skeptical audience of Westerners, you know, just kind of, you know, you're sitting there, okay, the llama's on his trip. And he just looked at them and he said, if you think I'm making this up, I've been there. <laughs> and then he went on with his description. So just, what do we do with that? Right, what do we do with that? It's really interesting. So that's just an, an example. I think, well, wow. It'd be great if I could just let go. So, so just to see when something kind of rattles our cage and see how 
quickly our views spring up over nothing, over nothing. I was um, with some friends in, in Germany at a retreat, and we were having lunch, and two of the people were, were cooks, you know, and there was mushrooms for lunch somehow. And one of them said, mushrooms, you know, they're the, the most easy food to digest. Just, and the other, one, the other one goes, no, mushrooms are the most difficult food to digest. So that was just starting an easy conversation, and they each had readings and things that they'd read, and we could just see with intense, uh, but we could all see it. And, okay, who knows? <laughs> for some people it's easy, for some people it's hard. Let's just put it down. But just to see how quickly that can happen, about something completely inconsequential, unless you're lethally allergic to mushrooms, then it matters. But so never mind that when the strongest, most seductive, and most limiting view that we get caught in over and over and over is this Sakaya Ditti, Ditti view, personality view. So I just want to, um, and it's when we're caught in Sakaya Ditti in our view of personality is also when we're going to believe these thoughts of discouragement or frustration or that, you know, I can't do it or it should be you know, better by now, or any, any way that it goes, doubting the practice. It's coming from belief at that moment, in Sakaya Ditti. So, it's the habit, as Guy said, of perceiving and thus interpreting any particular moment of Nama Rupa, mind and matter, as me or mine. And, you know, we do this all the time. If we're aware of that's arising in the moment, that's fine. But as you know, it goes like that, right? So I think I used this example last year, but I was doing some, something that required doing some little thing with my hands, putting something together in the house. And I was having a, a bit of a hard time kind of fumbling around, you know, it didn't just go easily. It wasn't a horrible thing, just a little bit of fumbling. And it was unpleasant, so there's a little bit of aversion and impatience in my mind, oh, you know, you're so clumsy. This is true, I don't have good eye-hand coordination. And from that moment, you're so clumsy, the aversion to it, it went immediately into this whole view, which didn't feel like a view, it just felt like that's me, that's Carol. She's clumsy, she always has been, she can't play sports, that's why I meditate, because I can't do anything active. <laughs> but, you know, you can pick everything wholesome I've ever done in my life, all comes from this compensating for being a total klutz. And believing it at that moment, that is who I am. That's Carol's personality. Not personality, that's just Carol, right? It goes so far, so fast. And then the selective memory, picking out the, the fifth grade you know, gym class for losers, which I was put into because I couldn't <laughs> throw a softball further than 33 feet when we had the President Kennedy, you know, anyway. These things are deeply traumatic. <laughs> This is where when we see it, it's funny, it's just empty thoughts, it's not a problem, it's not bothering me now. But when we don't see it, we're believing that papancha, that's all papancha, we're believing, we're mistaking that for what's happening in the moment. I mean, the is happening, but we're believing the content is accurately describing reality. And this is where we just need to recognize, I don't need to fix it, I don't need to go out and suddenly, after all these years, find some way to become more coordinated eye to hand. I don't have to go to therapy to you know, get over the trauma of not being good at sports. 
I mean, I could do any of those things. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with them. But in that moment, it's just, oh, unpleasant feeling. You know, unpleasant memories. Unpleasant trying to do this. Basically, frustration, because I don't want to be doing this. I want to be doing something more enjoyable. Let's cut to the chase here. And you just see, okay, it's like this. You just feel that. This is where the power of our awareness, our mindfulness, our confidence in that is what we can come to rely on. Not having confidence in our personality. First of all, there is no solid state personality, which I hope to go to show, but also, you know, if I was having confidence in my personality, I would have given up a long time ago. But what we see with awareness is the personality, it's nothing solid state there. This bunch of thoughts and memories and feelings at this particular moment, at another moment, is something completely different. That's what we really need to see. And when we see, we're confusing the story. We're making a view and putting it onto the the openness, the ever-changing nature of this moment, mental, physical experiences. Oh, you don't have to change your personality. You don't have to get rid of it. But with, oh, it's like this, physical, mental experience. And sometimes the story is too complex. It's the papancha's moved way too far too fast. And you're in the really, you know, the core personality story of your life, right? We've talked about this before. You're at your core thing. And you can't think about it. You can't think it through and dissect it. But I love Ajahn Sumedho's thing. He just says, oh, Sakaya Ditti's like this. <laughs> you know you're caught in Sakaya Ditti. You can't go any further than that. Oh, Sakaya Ditti's like this. That's fine. I've done that a lot. It's, it's wonderful. Because it's that little shift from believing the papancha, believing the view, to recognizing a view is happening. Recognizing even there's belief, but already the perception has shifted. And that's really the place of freedom. A friend of mine, in terms of this, the real support it's the awareness, the mindfulness, but the real support is the steadiness of it. Thich Nhat Hanh said that wisdom comes from the long process of continuous mindfulness. Continuous means continuous intention. Of course, we know we all space out, okay? So that's a given. But the willingness, no matter what we're doing, when the moment we realize, oh, here I am, to just notice what's happening, that steadiness, that continuity of awareness is what really allows for the perception of impermanence, for the perception of anicca. Because otherwise, if I was just you know, doing my clumsy thing, and then I just space out for a while, and I don't notice all the other moments when something completely different is going on. Come back and notice the clumsy thing three days later. Oh, yeah, I'm a clumsy person. That's who I am. A good friend of mine who has been a cook here and at Spirit Rock and for many years, long, long-term practitioner, and she said, was telling me one day as she'd been sitting on a retreat uh, in Spirit Rock, and she said, you know, she self-identifies as an aversive person. And her, her self-identity is supported by her friends, you could put it that way. <laughs> yes, you are an aversive person, right? And so sometimes she's fine with it, sometimes not. She was sitting and she was just really feeling bad about herself. I guess she just had some aversive interaction or something, I don't know. But she was really feeling badly about herself. But she said, just, I'm sitting. Let me not get lost in the story. Let me just stay steady with my awareness and notice what's happening. And she said, yeah, there were quite a few aversive thoughts. 
But she said 90%, maybe 90% of the thoughts and ideas that came up weren't aversive at all. They were neutral, they were compassionate, they were loving, they were generous, they were you know, interested, they were equanimous. She said, oh, so this view, this selective perception was picking out the 90%, the 10%, right, and saying, this is who I am. She didn't identify herself as a generous person, although plenty of generous motivations and thoughts came through, plenty of loving, plenty of creative. You, you see what I mean? So the steadiness is really what helps us see the impermanence of the view. It's what lets in the perceptions that don't support the view. And that's why sometimes practice is rather uncomfortable, even though it's opening us to you know, a much more comfort and ease in the world, a much more spacious and free way of being. But the, the intersection, mm, we don't like that so much, you know? It's uncomfortable. The Buddha said, bhikkhus, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, developed and cultivated, he doesn't say have it once and you're done. When the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sensual lust, it eliminates all lust for existence, it eliminates all ignorance, it uproots all conceit I am. That's a pretty powerful statement. You recognize those as meaning a completely enlightened person, right, by the end of that. But that's a powerful statement, the perception of impermanence developed and cultivated over and over and over and over. So this is where, you know, we really, we need to find the, the trust, the confidence, the re-inspiration for ourselves over and over and over, you know, that, yes, just something as simple as the perception of impermanence, and that's just one example, but that it really has to be perceived over and over and over, and to have the patience, you know, the faith, not get so, so lost in either discouragement or our stories we tell ourselves or, you know, kind of the sense of hitting the wall, that's enough already, I'm never going to get there, this whole thing's a waste of time, I saw impermanence, it didn't do it. <laughs> to really, I mean, you know, we, and, and a lot of people have moments, I've had it myself, but people have said it here, oh, I almost wish I never started on a path if I knew it was going to be this whatever it is, hard or long, or if I had to open to this or whatever. I think those are interesting moments. They're just moments, but I think they're really interesting moments. The times when our, you know, our faith might not be challenged, our, our trust in our own personal ability, or we're caught in our views, or our aspiration, we can't quite find it, and we just get discouraged. I just want to talk about um, just a few different ways I've seen that happen, and I'm sure you can think of many more. But it's all this um, times when we need to at least have the, enough trust to reconnect with our motivation, to have the patience not to just give up. Now, the thing is, I actually think at this point, none of us could give up if we wanted to. That's what some people mean by, oh, I almost wish I didn't start, I could go back to ignorance. But it's too late. 
That's the good news. So we can even, you know, fall into discouragement and despair and give it up for a while. Something always happens to wake us up again. That's what's so great. Usually it's dukkha. Usually it's suffering. Usually. It doesn't have to be, though. But there's different ways. One is just that feeling, I can't do this. Enlightenment not possible for me. What I just read about, you know, what the, uh, the perception of impermanence opens us to, and people can say, that's not possible for me. Or the, be rid of all sensual lust, to be rid of all lust for existence. I didn't sign up for that. I'm not actually sure I want that, right? Don't you sometimes have time when you hear certain teachings and you think, that can't be right. And, and I mean, I'm not claiming everything we say is, but I'm saying you think, enlightenment, like that, all dull, gray, nothing, you know? I don't know if I want to keep on going with that. Or just a kind of uh, attachment to a particular view of Sakaya Ditti we don't realize. So I want to just give a few, few examples of this. I call it hitting the wall. And we'll hit the wall over and over and over. That's okay. That's part of it. We have to learn not to take it so personally. One, and this is from, from the Buddha, which uh, uh, time of the Buddha, which I really like, a sense of really this is when we really had deep insight and understanding and a view has constructed around it that we don't realize and we can't get it back and oh, I can't do it, it's gone. So this is a, a monk named Asaji who is very ill and dying. And the Buddha comes to talk to him and it's like, it's like he says this to a lot, a lot of different suttas. He comes and says, you know, are you getting better? And the monk says, no, I'm not getting better. Basically, I'm dying. And the Buddha says, well, I hope you're not troubled by remorse and regret. You know? And Asaji says, no, I am. I have quite a lot of remorse and regret. And the Buddha says, why? Is it your virtue, your sila? Have you acted? He said, no, 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 my sila is fine. The Buddha says, well, then what do you have remorse and regret about? And the monk says, well, formally, venerable sir, when I was ill, I was able to keep on tranquilizing the bodily formations. I was able to obtain concentration. And now I cannot obtain concentration. And the thought occurs to me, it's just this thought of fear, let me not fall away. So he's dying and he's like in a panic because he can't get samadhi back that he used to have. And the Buddha, well, you can, you know, basically goes a whole talk of, you know, this is impermanent, that's impermanent. Basically what he's saying, haven't I told you everything is impermanent? Everything, you know, nothing to have remorse about. But this, I find this quite touching, you know, that with the Buddha and a monk who's lived his whole life, and still we can so easily fall into that. Remorse and regret, I can't get concentration back. Let me not die, confused. And the Buddha just, you know, takes him through. Everything's impermanent. He said, nothing, no problem. Just see that. So sometimes we don't have the Buddha there to remind us, but we might just know when we feel that sense of panic, like, don't let me fall away. Don't let me lose it. I can't get what I used to have in some way. Let that be a little light bulb going off. Wait a minute. I can't get what I used to have. Formally, I could, but now I can't. Ah, impermanence. Perception of impermanence. And then maybe you can even see, what's the view? Sometimes when we put the view into words, then it becomes so obvious. And when we haven't put it into words, we don't even know we're fighting against it. Oh, the view is, I should have this 
now that I've obtained the samadhi, it should be like this all the time. I mean, as soon as we say it, we know it can't be that way. So it's helpful sometimes. That's the thinking aspect that can be useful. Okay. Another way we sometimes hit a wall, we all hit this at times, but sometimes the times seem to last quite a bit, is one is it just feels like too much. Too much pain, physical pain, too much pain, emotional pain. I mean, we all hit moments of that when our mindfulness, our virya, our energy just isn't as strong as the intensity of the emotional or physical pain. We're worn down. And then it's skillful means. We need to pull back, regroup, balance. That's fine. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, and not just on retreat, but in our life, when somebody, whoa, this is too much. I don't want to see it anymore. I don't want to know about this anymore. And we just, we just really can fall into a great, not denial, because it's too far from denial, but really discouragement. Because that usually spirals into the papancha, the view that I'm not good enough, I can't do it, I should have been able to you know, work through this, or if I'd really had insight, it wouldn't happen. All of those stories, how it should be. Another similar thing is, that's kind of can, can bring up fear, is not actually uh, a pain or a sorrow or a loss, but the intimation. Do you ever get this sense that something really hellish is about to open up. <laughs> it hasn't, and you actually don't know that. But it's like this, sometimes it's like almost this sense of like deeply held view, holding the world in place, is about to be maha challenged, and I don't want to go there. No. And we can find on retreat, you might notice, you find yourself suddenly getting into distractibility, doing all these important things, a kind of a restlessness, a kind of anxiety. In our daily life, it happens too. It might be hidden longer or acted out over more time. But still, it can lead to doubt, to lack of self-doubt, lack of confidence, uh, kind of a losing your aspiration, a lack of courage. And that, those are views you don't need to hold on to because this happens to everybody. We get, at this point, it's really helpful if you can remember and actually call up your deep aspiration. And at this point, when we're really falling into this, I can't handle this pain, I don't want to know from this pain, and we call up our aspiration, the tendency is not to believe it. You know, yeah, that, yeah, right, that's really my aspiration. I don't think so. My aspiration is, <laughs> get me out of here. Or I'm not good enough to have that aspiration. If I could really have that aspiration, I wouldn't be running from this or hiding from this. Sakaya ditti, Sakaya ditti. Call up your aspiration and just take your stand there, not to make everything better, not to fix the painful thing, just that, yes, the aspiration and the former insight that's feeding our mind stream now will give us the courage in its own way, in its own time, to show up, to be a witness to whatever's happening, to see through it. No, we don't have to stick with comfort with the known. That's where my mind goes. Let me just stay where it's comfortable, where I know. I'm just being kind to myself. You know that one. And that stepping outside of the cage can be scary, can be uncomfortable. And we think, well, I can't do it. I'm just this puny little old lady. I can't do it. You know? Maybe I could do it when I was 19. That was amazing what I did when I was 19. Now I'm old and sick. And I, you know. <laughs> Just personality view. 
this is like a kind of allegory. Late recently, a couple months ago, I, I had the flu, which is unusual for me, and I was kind of laid out for a couple of weeks in, at home. Thank God I was home. And um, I was basically useless, you know. I could just lie around. So, so one, one way I passed the evenings for three evenings in a row was I watched again the, the three-part movie, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know, which probably some of you may not know, but some of you have. So, and I was really struck. Of course, I can't give you the whole story if you don't know it, but I was put <laughs> in <laughs> <laughs> several hours, <laughs> fill up the time. Um, but what I was actually really struck by, actually quite profoundly, was how the whole story of Frodo, I felt like it was a really deep allegory for our practice and for how we keep having to rediscover within ourselves the courage and we have to remake our commitment and remake our motivation. We set our foot on the path and we're wholeheartedly committed. We don't get to just do that once and it flies over and over, you know? And so, so just a little bit how, you know, he's this sweet little hobbit in a little, little kind of perfect world where people are kind and most of the people there have no sense of an outer world of confusion and violence and evil. He has a little bit of a sense because of his uncle and, and the wizard, you know, who knows the whole world. And so this ring, this evil ring of power comes to him. The wizard, base, who he trusts deeply, says, you have to take it. You have to leave your home turf, the Shire, and go to this nearby place, but where he'd never been, and deliver, I'll meet you there, and then we'll figure it out. So that was really scary for him. That was challenging more than anything he did in his life. But he, he, he saw that it needed to be done out of basic, his basic goodness. He brought up his courage, and he trusted the wizard, and he went and did this thing. So good things happened in that friends came to support him, a kind of, a kind of uh, mutual goodness and courage. But it was also more scary and dangerous than anything he could have imagined, you know? He, the, those dark riders were trying to kill him, and it really was, you know, horrible. They barely made it there. I think, wow, thank God, you know, that was an adventure. And then, of course, it turns out Gandalf isn't there, that uh, black riders tried to kill them there. They have to end up trusting somebody they never met who seems kind of seedy and sinister, you know. And, and not only is it not over then, they have to follow this guy, Aragorn, on a much, much more difficult path to where the elves are for days, you know, not knowing if they can trust him. But, and each, so Frodo has to make that decision, you know. He could have made the decision not to do it. He could have made the decision to go back. But he has a sense it's about more than him, you know. So, so they do that. And then he's really almost killed. He's stabbed, and they're having fights and much, much more closer. And the elves come and take him. And finally, they get to Rivendell, which is like the most beautiful place, like a Deva realm, more beautiful than they could ever imagine. You know? Thank God, here's, you know, Gandalf, everything's okay. I've done more than I ever could have done. I feel good now, I can go home. And then, of course, it turns out that's only the beginning, right? And he has to find in himself uh, the courage when he sees that this, this ring has to go all the way to the evilest place in the land, and he has no clue where that is or how to get there. Or he knows by now that he has no clue, actually, of the danger he's going into. He knows enough to know how really vast the journey is, which he didn't know at the beginning. You know, and that's like us now. We know enough to know how vast the journey is and that we really don't have a clue, although we'd like to. Mm -hmm. And 
he has to make that decision, and out of that comes, you know, the friendship of the, all the other beings that go with him, and the loyalty, and the courage, and the humility, and the strength, and the wisdom. And, you know, it keeps on going. He finds finally he can't trust anybody. You know, he has to make the decision to go off completely alone, completely alone, having no clue how he'll get there, how he'll do it. And his friend Sam comes with him and all, right? So over and over and over, he's having to make more profound, difficult decisions to move towards the difficulty, not away from it. But what but it's not the same decision, because each time he has a much greater sense of wisdom, a greater sense of faith, a greater sense of the importance of what he's doing. It's less and less about him and more and more about, you know, beings in the world. But it never gets easier. In fact, it gets harder. The, the love between the friends gets stronger. His sense of goodness gets stronger. But then, even as he gets closer to, have to, you know, to Mordor, to the really bad place, I said, put the ring in the fire it came from, the evil start, stops being just out there, you know, and it starts to eat him up from the inside. So it's, it, it really shows that his, his courage and stamina almost breaks, almost breaks, but somehow there's also support and help where it's unexpected. You never know how it's going to go, and he manages to complete the task, which doesn't, of course, end the growing or end the love or end life. And I just thought that was so great. I really feel like our whole practice is like that. You know, we think I really can't, I can't do this anymore. This is harder than anything I ever thought I'd have to face. But then we need to turn around and recognize the wisdom, the courage, the compassion, the equanimity. All of that is so much greater than you ever knew you had before. And it's really important to recognize that too. So when you're in your life and you think, this again, this pattern, this anger, I see it, I'm still unblasting my little kids and I ought to know better and I feel the shame even more, you think it's just worse than it ever was. What's the point of practice if it's worse than it ever was? But it's not worse. The seeing of it is already a huge shift. The openness to actually feel the pain of the anger and the shame, the pain of the shame, and the immediate feedback of the pain from somebody else. That's a much deeper level of sensitivity and non-separation than we started out with. If we stay focused on the Sakaya Ditti, this feels worse than ever, and I'm still doing this, bleh, we're lost. If we let ourselves expand the view and say, wow, yeah, it's a deeper step into the interconnectedness of all, into the the power of habits of kalesa, but also the power of awareness and the, the importance and power of patience and our motivation and commitment to keep on bearing witness. At some point, at some point, it does happen over and over. It shifts from just feeling hopelessly caught in the pattern to there's a moment of, oh, right now I don't have to do this. I can turn and walk away just for this moment. Maybe next time you're caught again. That comes from the openness to all of the interconnectedness and the deeper sensitivity to the suffering that comes from acting and thinking, from greed, from hatred, from confusion. And that's a great courage that we have to keep opening in this way. 
important to recognize it because we tend to sometimes just notice how it's going wrong. Other ways we get caught briefly is, is what Upandita calls stopping within. It's actually when things are going really well on retreat or in our life. I've seen it in myself a lot when there's been quite some insight or I leave, leave retreat in a really balanced place, feeling really alive and the calaces I don't feel so sticky and the personality view doesn't feel so sticky and not reactive and more connected and it's just, wow, this is great. After my first retreat, it was like that, more or less for a year. I don't wish that on anybody. Because there's this feeling, well, now that's it. I can just coast. You don't even think you're coasting. You think, now that's it, you know? Instead of just, so that's called stopping with this, okay, now I got it. I don't, not that we have to try, try, try all the time, but just have that willingness to be awake, no matter what's happening. So at first, when there's stopping within, the wakefulness is natural. The momentum of awareness is there. You know those times when it's just going by itself. Well, Anicca rears its head usually here too, and it seems so natural, it stops being so natural. You can't find it. Oh, okay. Stopping within is before that. This is, this is cool. This is it. Sometimes it's not even that, but it's just this is good enough. This is pleasant. You know, I'm not suffering so much. I don't want to rock the boat. This is, I can live like this. <laughs> this is okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> good enough. <laughs> like the Buddha said, he made, you know, he never, he resolved never to settle for less than total awakening. But the problem with stopping within, I don't need to tell you, do I? Nothing is steady state. This is good enough. I can live like this. Well, you won't live like that forever. I can promise you that. Another, another place, uh, really around our personality view, sort of what people have mentioned, a kind of a, a fear or a resistance at moving out of the familiar or at, it's really more an idea of losing something familiar, something familiar about ourselves or about our lives. It's the kind of questions, and we all ask them, that start, well, if freedom from clinging means I don't care about my family anymore. I don't if freedom from clinging mean I don't appreciate the beauty of nature, does freedom from clinging means I can't tell pleasant from unpleasant, I can't appreciate art, you know, whatever, you know, fill in your blanks. Freedom from clinging means I don't have a personality anymore. What about, what about, I, I like my irritability. I'm comfortable with that, you know. That seems crazy, but we're comfortable with our patterns. So you might just notice if there's that sense of, if it means this goes away, I'm not so sure I'm signed on for this. You don't have to land in that either, but just notice that's another place where we can kind of hit a wall. Or that nostalgia for samsara that Guy talked about. I've felt that often and really very, very powerfully sometimes. So I don't even know what for sometimes, but this nostalgia as if something that's been the fabric, you know, of my whole life, and I couldn't even put a word on it, is dissolving, is going to go away. I'm going to be thrust into the unfamiliar, and with unfamiliar read, you know, whatever projection, cold, distant, disconnected, on whatever, inhuman, whatever it is. And this huge nostalgia, this poignancy, this, this real sadness, 
And, but really, I've seen, in my, especially in intensive practice over years at different points, I could say it's been like a, a series of deaths, you know, like a sense of death. And it really feels like a death of some particular aspect of my personality or some particular way I held myself. Not even how my personality manifests, but some view or some way I related to myself, to my life, to the people in my life, how I thought about myself. When I say it, it probably sounds clear that it's no great loss. And that's actually the truth. But in the moment of seeing it, or seeing through it, say, oh, that, that isn't who I am. That isn't really accurate. That isn't really how I relate to whatever it is. It's been experienced internally for me like a kind of a death, a real giving up. On the other side of that, it's freedom. It's really freedom. But not to deny or belittle or think it shouldn't be that way. There's sadness, there's poignancy, there's sense of loss or fear that this is going to go. Fine. Notice that. There's room in awareness for that, too. It doesn't have to be a problem. But in the big picture, which includes everything of our life, awakening or the liberation of heart, of non-clinging, it's radical. It's uncompromising. And we can't know. The mind can't know what that's like, because the mind can only know the thoughts that it already knows. It can only know the views that it's expressed. But the awakening, the standpoint of me, you know, enlightenment's not a self-improvement project. It's the standpoint of me that gets seen through. Okay, so we don't personally get gratified by having some kind of enlightenment experience. It's not about that. So that's what the sense of the loss or death, these little blips, is like, oh, that meanness, not just having so much meaning right now. Stephen Batchelor says, emptiness is not just the experience of oceanic bliss. It is a falling apart of all of our strategies of self-interest, of self-centeredness, of seeming protection. And although freeing, it is freeing, it also can evoke a great sense of disconcertion, of dis-ease, even fear. Sort of like being in no man's land without our familiar reference points. So when we see this, there's no stasis. There's one of my uh, advited teachers, Punjaji, he used to say, pick up your foot and then don't put it down again anywhere. I didn't used to understand it, but now I realize that you pick up your foot and there is nowhere to put it down because there's no stasis. You put it down, but there's nothing stable there. You pick it up, you put it down, there's nothing stable there. Disconcerting at times, but that's okay. We find a willingness to rest in the confusion, as Yoko Beck says. And then we see the disconcertion actually opens up our cage of view of self-interest and, oh, it's like this. It's just like this, like Guy said from the Bahia Sutra. So simple. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, thinking. Just like this. It's so simple. We can't stand it. But when we isn't what's being held to, a friend of mine calls it the place of no problem, coming and going. 
So over and over, just finding that willingness to commit to surrender to the unknown. We don't have to know. We can't know what should happen. If we think we know what should happen, that's the trap. Oh, not knowing. It's like this. And what can really, just one to end, I find helps me a lot, is a Tibetan practice. It's very simple. They call it purifying our aspiration. Just reminding us of our aspiration or motivation. And they say, just to cultivate Sogni Rinpoche, to cultivate the correct motivation within your own experience, it turns into bodhicitta all by itself. So we'd be touching, finding our aspiration by itself. That'll give us the courage to keep going, like poor Frodo, you know, ending up for all beings. So it's a very simple practice they call the three excellences. So in any practice period, which could be a sitting or a walking or the day, you know, you always start with taking refuge, you know, really connecting with your refuge. And uh, for the Tibetan, they would cultivate bodhicitta, but I'd say if you cultivate, what's, what's your deepest aspiration while you're practicing? Then you just forget it and practice, just being moment-to-moment awareness, right? Then just at the end, when the bell rings or you stop the walking or you finish eating, whatever's your practice period, you complete it by just briefly dedicating the merit of your practice to all sentient beings. And I just want to say for this, if there's the feeling my practice isn't worth dedicating any merit to anybody, <laughs> Sakaya Ditti. <laughs> and along with dedicating the merit, again, making a really pure aspiration. And this is something that's interesting to me. If it will dedicate the merit, you know, good. But they say you make the merit a pure aspiration for my own awakening and the awakening of all. So that the merit, I, I mean, in this, you know, that doesn't just fly out there and, and gets you like a nice, comfortable job, you know, or you don't have back pain tomorrow or something. But anyway, the point of it is it really connects us again to our deepest aspiration. And I've done this a lot, and I go through all that stuff about, oh, no, no, I'm not good enough, nothing to me, bodhicitta. Just let that blab on. Connect to the motivation. It really does strengthen and deepen by itself. And then in times when you're hitting a wall, you'll remember it. You'll be able to call it up, and it'll give us the, the faith, the confidence to just surrender into not knowing. And that, that's really all we need to do. So. Let's sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.